0: You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 37, for March 16th, 2009. Warning, this episode contains mature themes and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hello, Metamorphs! We are back! This is Chris Lester, your host and the creator and producer of Metamorph City. And I am really sorry that this episode is a week late, guys, but we are here, we are back, and we are ready for action. We ran into some technical difficulties last week with some line noise that had shown up in my recording setup Still having a little bit of difficulty with it, but the voltage conditioner that I have purchased seems to be helping, so hopefully we will not have any more delays. The good news is that all of the audio has now been recorded for the chapters from now to the end of the book, and none of the narration that is left had any of the troubles that we saw in the audio that was recorded for chapter 27 initially, so... Hopefully no more trouble on that front. I want to remind you guys about the feedback show that is coming up this week on Wednesday, March 18th. We are going to be having a feedback show with me, Dan Sawyer, and all-new urban fantasy author Gail Carragher. Gail's a good friend of mine and Dan's, who is local here to the Bay Area of California. She has recently gotten a book deal with Orbit for her new urban fantasy comedy Victorian steampunk series, The Parasol Protectorate. The first book in the series, Soulless, is coming out later this fall, and it looks like it's going to be a tremendously fun read. So Gail is going to be coming on to talk with me and Dan about feedback, philosophy, Religion, politics, all the usual stuff that we get into in our feedback shows. So if you would like to be a part of the feedback madness and sending us off onto all kinds of fun little tangents, please send in your feedback between now and Wednesday. Again, the email address is feedback at metamorecity.com and the voicemail is two oh six two oh three zero nine nine four. That is two oh six two oh three. Send in your messages so that Dan and Gail and I can talk about them, and it's gonna be fun. Looking forward to this one. Got another cast substitution this week. Because of continuing technical difficulties that Martha Puskus is having with her recording setup, Paulette Jackson is once more filling in for the role of Miriam. Not for the entire chapter, but for the third scene in Chapter 27. Hopefully by the time that the next chapter is due, Martha's audio troubles will be corrected and we will be able to get her back into full cast mode, but for this chapter you will hear her in one scene and then you will hear Paulette in the second scene. So with no further ado, here is chapter 27 of Making the Cut, and here to introduce the chapter is my good friend Kim Fortuner, a.k.a. Kim the Comic Book Goddess. Take it away, Kim.
1: Hello, fellow metamorphs. This is Kim the Comic Book Goddess from the Ninth Heroes cast, Four Color Heroines, and most especially, the Geek Pantheon in Your Moment of Kim podcast, located at geekpantheon.com. We're sponsored by the SSDWC, the Secret Society for Delayed World Conquest. We here at the SSDWC believe that if you're going to fall for an evil plot to take over the world, it should be our evil plot to take over the world. So you're required to comply with SSDWC Media Regulation 57B and listen to our podcasts. And now, the story so far. The Black Ops agent known as Victor Hincavos has served the Empire of Metamor and the Psy Collective with distinction for the last 15 years. He has trained thousands of young Psy's in the art of combat, completed hundreds of successful missions, and destroyed countless enemies of the Empire and the Collective alike. He is tall, handsome, intelligent, supremely well-trained, and gifted with a powerful talent for telekinesis. Unfortunately, he is also a sadistic, manipulative sociopath. His handlers within the collective thought he could be controlled, that his aggression could be channeled in constructive directions, but Victor chafed against the control of the collective's elders and sought to start a life on his own, away from their influence. He cut a devil's bargain with the vampire syndicate, gaining access to top-secret cybernetics that made him immune to most forms of telepathy. He then seduced his most powerful student, Abby Preston, and persuaded her to leave the collective with him. Along the way he left a trail of dead bodies and broken lives, and when Elder Miriam Bakhtavar tried to hunt him down, he set a trap that ended with her being turned into a vampire. Now she works as a mole for the vampire crime boss, Malcolmard Ballops, compelled by the power of the blood bond to betray her own people. Six months after Victor's escape, Malcolm has commanded Miriam to capture Brian and Fiona, two retired psyops who carried out an embarrassing and destructive raid on one of Malcolm's front companies. Fiona has been facing demons of her own. She just found out that Victor killed her mother when Fiona was a child, then forced his friend Evan to erase Fiona's memory of what he had done. Fiona wants revenge. But she's more worried about protecting the people she cares about. She begged her lover Sasha to stay out of the effort to find Abby Preston. And Sasha reluctantly agreed. Meanwhile, Abby has decided to take her life into her own hands. After Victor lost his temper during an argument and nearly strangled her, Abby realized she would never be safe with him. And more importantly, Neither would her unborn child, a powerful telepath who has been plagued with terrifying visions while still in the womb. While Victor was out looking for a telepathic doctor for Abby, Abby gathered her things and left their apartment, intent on finding the only contact of Victor's whom she knows she can trust. His old pupil and sparring partner, Daniel Sharabi.
0: Chapter 27 Victor knew something was wrong the moment he entered the apartment. His telepathy was only of average strength, and he wasn't very skilled at picking out individual mental signatures from the mass of humanity, but he had always been able to recognize Abby. Her mind stood out like a searchlight amid the fainter constellations of the minds around her, arresting in its beauty and impossible to ignore and as his perceptions extended to the apartment's outer walls, he knew immediately that she was not here. Sudden fear rose up in him. Was she unconscious? Or worse, dead? Has something happened to my child? Pushing back the urge to panic, Victor swept through the entire flat, touching nothing, opening the doors ahead of him with his telekinesis. There was no body. His next thought was that she might have been kidnapped, but there was no sign of a struggle either. If someone had taken her, they had covered up any trace of it. Possible, but unlikely. Besides, Abby was powerful enough that it was unlikely that she could be taken anywhere against her will. The fear began to subside then, giving way to anger. He went back through the apartment again, searching methodically. Not much was out of place, but Victor noticed that a few of Abby's favorite shirts were missing, as were her purse and one of their smaller overnight bags. It was that last bit of information that clinched it. If she had just needed to run out to a store for something, she wouldn't have taken the overnight bag. If the hive had found her and she had gone willingly, they probably would have taken more. All the evidence led to one conclusion. Abby had betrayed him. He had promised her, promised her, that he would find her a telepathic doctor. She had agreed to give him time to do it. And then she had broken faith with him, Probably the instant he left, she had taken his child and run away from him, back to the elders. No. He growled as the anger bubbled over into blinding rage. No! The room grew hazy then, as it sometimes did when the fury was on him. He felt the odd floating sensation as he slipped away into the other place the dark place inside himself, where he retreated when the stress became too great. He was vaguely aware that he was still moving, acting, doing something. His sense of time was distorted in the dark place. When he returned to himself, he was unsure whether it had been only seconds or minutes or hours. The apartment looked like it had been struck by a tornado. Shattered glasses and plates mingled on the floor with the splintered remains of kitchen chairs. Knives and forks had embedded themselves in the walls. The bedside lamp was a ruin of broken ceramic and twisted metal. Victor himself knelt in the eye of the storm, untouched by the carnage around him. He usually felt better after returning from the dark place, but this time it had only made him a little tired. He could still feel the cold, sickening pain of betrayal, like a knife twisting in his gut. He rose to his feet and reached out with his teak, sifting through the wreckage until he found a few of Abby's clothes. They flew to his hand and he jammed them into the pocket of his coat. It took a while longer to find his little black book of contacts. He knew a few unlicensed mages who specialized in divination. He'd find the closest one and persuade him to do a locator spell to find Abby. And if the first one couldn't be persuaded, his body would persuade the next one. Fiona had finished her dinner and was nursing a cup of coffee when her business phone rang. Brian looked up at her curiously. Expecting anyone? Shaking her head, she crossed to the kitchen counter and retrieved the phone.
2: Hin Connell here. Fiona?
0: This is Miriam. Fiona felt her eyebrows go up.
2: Elder Baktivar, how can I help you?
0: At the table, Rebecca and Brian immediately sat up a bit straighter. Fiona moved closer and pressed the speakerphone button so they could hear Miriam's voice.
1: We've had a breakthrough. A girl Victor abducted has been found.
0: Fiona felt something ease inside her chest, attention she hadn't known she was carrying. An honest smile spread over her face.
2: That is excellent news, Elder. She paused. Any word on Victor?
3: No, and that's why we're keeping it quiet. Right now we have the girl hidden in a remote location. The only people who know about it are you and my own agents. So as soon as he discovers that she's missing, Victor is going to come looking for her. We could keep her hidden from scrying for a little while, but not indefinitely.
2: Fiona nodded. You intend to set a trap for him?
3: Precisely. It'll be easy for a man with Victor's resources to obtain a locator's spell to find Abby, but it won't tell him who else is with her.
0: Miriam's voice hardened.
3: As long as he lives... Victor will be a threat to the Collective, I intend to force a confrontation on our terms. Victor's temper is his weak point. It makes him rash, foolish.
0: Fiona heard an edge of cold pleasure seep into the Elder's voice.
4: I want you and Brian there with me
1: to take advantage of that.
0: Fiona looked over at Brian. His eyes were distant, and the tightness in them bore witness to his conflicted emotions.
2: We need to discuss this as a family, Elder Bakhtavar. May I return your call when we have made a decision?
3: Of course, child, but please call back as soon as you can. We don't know how long we have before Victor discovers that Abby is missing, and there is no one in this hive better suited to stopping him.
0: Fiona thought that was probably hyperbole, but she let it pass without comment. There was certainly no one more motivated to stop Victor, given what he had done to Dell and Trace.
2: And my mother,
0: Fiona thought with a sudden stab of grief and anger, though she was sure that Miriam was unaware of that particular connection.
2: Sasha is working late tonight, but I can reach her by phone. Brian and Rebecca are here. We should have a decision presently.
0: Fiona rang off, then set the phone on the table. She returned to her seat and looked at Brian and Rebecca in turn.
5: I think you should help her. The Elder's right. We need to catch Victor before anyone else gets
2: hurt.
0: Fiona looked at her sharply.
2: Is that a precognitive statement?
0: Becca shook her head vigorously.
2: Uh Uh-uh. I only esp Victor
0: once,
5: and you saw what happened. I'm never trying that again.
0: Fiona suppressed a wince. The memory of the nightmarish painting was all too vivid in her mind.
6: Do you think you could esp Abby? Maybe get a sense of what's going to happen to her.
0: Rebecca's eyes went distant, then glowed yellow as she tapped into her power. She remained frozen for 23 seconds, Fiona counted, and then came out of the trance.
5: It's all fuzzy.
0: She sounded frustrated.
5: She's definitely on the run from Victor, and he's definitely coming after her. But what happens after that could go a lot of different ways.
0: She shook her head.
5: Sorry, guys, but most of this depends on people making decisions that they haven't made yet. "'Beyond that, it's all a jumble.'
0: "'It's all right.' Brian took her hand and gave it a comforting squeeze. "'At least that tells us that we have a chance to help choose what happens.' Fiona looked at him closely. His expression was still troubled, but she could see him slipping into his role as the military man, taking up the burden of leadership once more.
2: "'What is your assessment, Captain?'
0: Calling Brian by his rank pushed him a little further in the transition from family man to warrior, as she had known it would.
7: Elder Baktavar won't be able to keep Abby's recovery hidden for long. She's right. This is the best opportunity we'll have to go after Victor.
0: He looked over at Rebecca. My biggest concern is guarding the home front. I don't like the idea of leaving you and the baby home alone. Rebecca shrugged uncomfortably.
5: Thanks, but I think this is bigger than us.
0: She gave him a half-hearted smile.
5: And hey, if the trap works, Victor
2: won't know we're involved until it's too late. It is a calculated risk, but we stand a better chance of success if we bring all our forces to bear at once.
0: Fiona looked up at Brian, and for a moment she allowed him to see the pain she carried inside of her.
2: And on a personal level, I need to be involved in this.
0: Brian closed his eyes and nodded. I know. He was silent a moment, then let out a long, heavy sigh. I didn't want to see our family pulled into this fight. But you've been in it longer than any of us realized. Longer than Abby, even. When he looked up at her, Fiona could see the decision in his eyes. Victor is going to pay for what he did to your mother. We still need Sasha's blessing, but if she agrees, we're in. Fiona placed her hand over Brian's and squeezed it once, lightly. He read the thanks in her eyes without her having to say a word. She reached for the phone. Miriam's phone rang less than twenty minutes after she rang off. She glanced at the caller ID, then answered.
2: Fiona? Elder Bakhtavar? I just spoke to Sasha. She has some reservations about the plan, but she has agreed to trust your judgment. We are with you.
0: Miriam closed her eyes.
2: Excellent.
1: She
0: kept her voice clear and steady.
2: Meet me in one hour at the Hutchins Tower subway terminal. From there I shall take you to the place where the child is being kept. Understood. Any other instructions, Elder?
0: Miriam hesitated thinking about all the things she wished she could say but couldn't.
2: Come prepared for a fight. We don't know what resources Victor has acquired. Be prepared for anything. Anything, Fiona.
0: There was a brief silence on the other end of the line. Yes. Fiona said at last, her voice serious and distant.
2: Of course, Elder. In one hour, then. One hour.
0: The phone went silent. Miriam set it down and stared at it. The ecstasy of Malcolm's blood gift had been short-lived. She could still feel the power he had instilled in her, the magic in his undead blood ironically making her feel more alive. But within a few hours, her manic feelings of devotion to him had faded, leaving her in a more rational and altogether more depressing state of mind. As much as she had adapted to her existence in between... Malcolm's order to capture and bind Fiona and Brian had reminded her of the horror of her situation. The prince had asked little of her these last few months, and Braddock's interest in her seemed limited to using her as a trophy and occasional sex toy. That was tedious, and sometimes painful, but at least it affected only Miriam herself. Now, though, Malcolm had lulled the hive into a false sense of security, and he had given Miriam the first orders that would directly harm her people and Miriam, for all that she hated him, was powerless to refuse. Still, she was not ready to give up hope entirely. Malcolm's orders had been explicit, but he had overlooked a handful of details. Tiny ones, to be sure, but there they were, just the same. She spared no hope for herself. She was well and truly damned, and nothing she could do now would allow her to escape it. But she believed that there might be a chance, just the barest chance, that Fiona and Brian could be saved, and perhaps Lena and the other thralls as well. She got to her feet and went to find Lena. She had orders to give, instructions that her seneschal would need to follow if her mission should fail.
2: Please, Great Maker, grant me that much. I have failed so many people already. Let me do the same for Malcolm. Blessed goddess, let me fail again. Just one last time.
0: With a small note of satisfaction, Danny clicked the send button and transmitted her last set of test results to its corresponding physician. Finally, she muttered, gazing with relief at her empty inbox. Even for a Monday, today had been a bitch. She'd come back from the weekend and found five hells worth of work waiting for her. It had taken three hours of overtime, but now, at last, she could get out of here.
3: And start the whole thing again tomorrow. It's a good thing I like my job.
0: The desk phone rang as she was shutting down her computer. She almost let it just go to voicemail, but she saw the caller ID and recognized that it was coming from the front desk. That usually meant an outside call, so she picked up the phone.
3: What you got for me, Meg? I was just about to clock out. Hey, Danny.
0: The receptionist kept her voice low, as if trying to avoid being overheard.
4: I've got a girl down here asking for Daniel. I think she's pregnant, and she's acting really...
0: Danny frowned. Rebecca's daughter Lila had been born weeks ago, and Sasha wasn't showing yet. Besides, Sasha worked here.
3: Did she say who she was? Wouldn't tell me.
0: Meg sounded frustrated.
4: Said she wouldn't talk to anyone until she talks to Daniel first.
0: She paused.
4: Danny, this kid's maybe 15 or 16 years old. This thing's got
3: abuse written all over it.
0: Danny felt the bottom drop out of her stomach.
3: I'll be right down.
0: Her voice had gone suddenly hoarse.
4: Don't let her leave, Meg. Don't think she wants to, but I'll tell her you're on your way.
0: Danny returned the phone to its cradle and headed for the lift, resisting the urge to run. As she rode the car down to the lobby, she put up her mental shields and composed her features in a neutral, pleasant expression, trying to imitate the control that came so easily to Fiona. On the inside, though, her thoughts were spinning.
3: She came to me. She finally got smart and left him, and she came to me. If I can bring her back into the hive... Prophet, help me. Don't let me screw this up.
0: The lift doors opened, and she strode out into the lobby with careful, deliberate steps. Sure enough, there was Abby, dressed in several layers of shabby clothing with a purse and a small overnight bag on the chair beside her. She was trying to look casual and failing miserably at it. Pregnancy had thickened the baby fat on her heart-shaped face. Her hair had been dyed and cut short, and it hung limp and matted on either side of her face. Her large, expressive eyes, once bright with the optimism and enthusiasm of youth, now looked haunted and careworn. She looked up at Danny as she approached, and Danny saw in those eyes the wisdom that was born in hardship and pain— Those weren't a child's eyes anymore. Danny expected to feel Abby's mind touch hers, but the girl just stared at her intently. Danny knelt in front of her chair and smiled. Hello there, she said softly, in what she hoped was a friendly tone of voice.
3: I'm Danny Shirabi, Daniel's other half, I guess.
0: Abby leaned in close and looked her in the eyes, her face deadly serious. Reaching out, she placed her hands on either side of Danny's face. Danny resisted the urge to pull away.
8: I can't hear you.
0: Abby's voice was grave and barely above a whisper.
8: You closed off your thoughts.
0: She paused, considering.
8: I could make you open up, but it's better if you do it yourself.
0: Danny swallowed.
3: Sorry, I was trying not to let slip to anybody who you were.
0: She lowered her mental shields, and Abby was inside her head an instant later.
3: Thank you. The receptionist told me
8: that you were an androgyne now, but I had to be sure it was really you.
0: She frowned.
8: There are two of you in here now. I didn't know the curse did that.
3: Neither did I,
0: Danny said dryly.
3: It's true. Daniel and I are two different people now, but we both remember you.
0: She reached up and put her hand over one of Abby's.
3: I'll help you however I can. Just tell me what you need.
0: Abby lowered her hands from Danny's face and sat back in the seat. She regarded Danny for a moment in silence.
8: I thought I was going to have to beg you for help.
0: She kept her words safely inside the link.
8: Instead, you begged to help me. Why?
0: Danny looked away, blushing.
8: It's the right thing to do.
0: She felt the stirring of Abby's mind inside hers and suppressed a shiver.
8: You feel guilty. You think that saving me is your penance for...
0: Her eyes widened, then turned hard.
8: So that's what he was hiding from me. I had a feeling Victor was a murderer, but I
3: couldn't be sure until now.
0: Danny stared up at her in astonishment.
3: He hid something from you? How?
0: Abby shook her head slightly.
8: I don't know. It doesn't matter. Right now, the only thing that matters is keeping Darla safe. Darla,
0: Danny asked, gesturing at Abby's belly. Abby nodded.
8: You should know what's going on.
0: Then she opened the link wider, and a flood of memories poured into Danny. It happened in an instant, but the force of it drove Danny back onto her ass. Faster than an eye blink, she knew everything Abby had suffered. The months of isolation, the slow estrangement from the man she had once loved, the panic attacks Darla experienced after her precognitive visions... The terrifying moments earlier today when she had thought that Victor was about to kill her. Tears came to Danny's eyes, and she choked back a sob. My God. Danny's mental voice flooded with anguish and compassion.
3: Abby, I'm so sorry. My choices
8: were my own. It wasn't your fault, or Daniel's. Victor would have done what he did with or without your help.
0: She leaned in close, holding Danny's gaze.
8: I'm not your path to absolution, Danny Shirabi. Not with Eli, and not with the Hive. Your sins have nothing to do with me.
0: Danny squeezed her eyes shut, but she couldn't hide from the touch of Abby's mind, or from the truth of her words. Abby was right. Helping her wouldn't bring back Del and Trace, or excuse Daniel's complicity in helping the vampires. And thinking that she could present Abby to the Hive like some sort of prize, she winced.
3: I'm sorry. You're right. I was being stupid.
0: She set her jaw and looked up at Abby again.
3: But I still want to help you, because it is the right thing to do.
0: A half-smile played across Abby's face for a moment. She nodded once.
3: Darla needs a telepathic
8: doctor, and I need a safe place to sleep where Victor can't find me. I think he still has contacts inside the hive, so there can't be any record that I'm here.
0: A ripple of fear ran through her thoughts.
8: And I don't want anyone to know who I am until I'm sure that the elders aren't going to hurt Darla.
0: Danny nodded, understanding Abby's reasoning. If the Hive thought that Victor's insanity was genetic, they might mark Darla as a threat. She didn't believe they would actually kill the unborn child, but she wasn't going to waste time arguing the point with Abby. They needed to get her out of the lobby soon, before someone recognized her. There's a way. She rose to her feet.
3: Come with me and follow my lead.
0: Danny walked over to the reception desk with Abby in tow.
3: Hey, Meg. Got a patient for you to check in.
0: Meg flashed a smile at Abby, then turned back to Danny.
3: Sure thing. What's the name? Jenny Bloggs.
0: Meg's expression didn't change, but Danny felt the wave of worry and compassion that radiated from her. Got it. She kept her voice deliberately light.
4: Urgent care obstetrics? Exactly.
0: Abby shot a sideways glance at Danny. She reached down and took the girl's hand, giving it a reassuring squeeze. Meg typed in a few notes on the computer.
4: Is there a particular doctor
3: you'd like her to see?
0: Danny thought about it for a moment.
3: Who is on call for prenatal psychiatry?
0: Meg's eyebrows shot up.
3: I think there's only
4: like three of those in the entire city.
0: Her fingers danced across the keyboard for a few seconds, and she nodded to herself.
4: Victoria Carlyle? She normally works at Soul Shore General, but she's on the late shift tonight. I could put in a request for her to come down here when she gets a chance.
3: Please do. The residents can take care of Jenny until Dr. Carlyle gets here. And it gives me time to check with Sasha and make sure this doc can be trusted.
0: Abby squeezed her hand, confirming that she'd heard Danny's thoughts. Danny smiled briefly down at her, then signed the paperwork that Meg handed to her.
4: You can take her right up to the desk in OBGYN. Drowling is the resident on duty. She'll meet you there. Thanks, Meg.
0: Danny gestured for Abby to follow, and together they filed into the nearest lift.
3: Who's Jenny Bloggs?
0: Abby asked, once the doors had closed.
3: It's a code word. We use it for abused women who want to remain anonymous. If a man comes to the hospital looking for his wife or girlfriend, the Jenny Bloggs name tells everybody on staff to play dumb.
0: She smiled apologetically.
3: It's not a permanent solution, I'm afraid. Nobody's going to kick you out, but if you stay for more than 24 hours, we have to report your case to Protective Services.
0: She paused.
3: Unless you ask the High for Sanctuary. Either way, whoever you go to for help is going to want to know who you are.
0: Abby looked up at their reflections on the ceiling of the lift car.
8: So, I have to decide whether to trust the government or trust the hive.
3: Pretty much.
0: (sighs) The girl sighed, a weary sound that had none of the melodrama Danny would have expected from someone her age.
8: All right. I need some time to think about this. No
3: problem. In the meantime, you'll be safe here.
0: The door slid open, and Danny led Abby to the obstetrics wing. Waiting by the desk was a young resident dressed in sea-green scrubs. Danny gazed with appreciation at her long black hair, dark eyes, and flawless fair skin. Her face had the elegant patrician lines typical of house drowling, but her smile was kind and gentle as they approached.
1: Jenny Bloggs?
0: she asked, turning to Abby. The girl nodded, and the resident offered her hand.
1: My name is Morgan. I'll be helping you get settled in.
0: Abby looked questioningly at Danny. It's okay. Danny put a hand on her shoulder and gave it a squeeze.
3: I'm going to go find Sasha and see what she can tell me about Dr. Carlisle. I'll check in on you later after you're settled in. Okay.
0: Abby managed a small but grateful smile.
3: Thank you, Danny.
0: Danny smiled back. Anytime. She turned to Morgan.
3: Make sure she gets whatever she needs. And can you have someone call me when Dr. Carlyle gets here?
1: Of course.
0: Morgan's voice was gentle, but Danny could see in her eyes the same determination that she herself felt. No one would hurt Abby again if they had anything to say about it. Danny headed back to the lift as Morgan led Abby into the obstetric swing. She needed to find Sasha, and fast. The hospital's asylum procedures worked well enough against abusive husbands, but Victor was a sociopath and a hardened killer. Danny hoped that they could keep Abby's presence here a secret, but if they couldn't, well, arranging for a little extra muscle couldn't hurt. Sasha didn't sense Danny coming until the woman was three feet behind her. That was her first clue that something was wrong. While Danny kept some thoughts to herself, she never put up her scy shields unless there was a damned good reason. Her second clue was the expression on the Androgyne's face.
9: What's happened?
0: Sasha asked, as Danny slipped into her shared office and shut the door. The other psych residents had already gone home for the day, so they were alone for the moment.
3: We've got a Jenny Blogs down in OBGYN.
0: Danny's expression was grave. Sasha sat up, frowning. She was as sympathetic to the plight of abused women as anyone, but it wasn't exactly her field of expertise.
9: Okay?
3: Her unborn child is having visions. She might be going mad from them.
0: Sasha sank back into her chair again.
3: Eli, save her. The mother's a teep, I take it? And not all that trusting of the collective. They're bringing in Dr. Carlyle from Soul Shore to look at her later tonight. Jenny needs some assurance that they aren't going to cut the baby out of her if they decide she's crazy.
0: Sasha shuddered in revulsion at the thought.
9: God, Danny, you know we would never do that. First of all, it's illegal to abort a fetus once its soul is mature enough to be detectable. Second of all, you're talking about a baby that's actually conscious. If that's not murder, it's damned close to it. I know.
0: Danny seated herself on the edge of Sasha's desk.
3: But moral concerns aside... Since when do mundane laws mean a damn to the collective?
0: Sasha opened her mouth to protest, then shut it again. Danny was right. She was thinking like a foundling again. Even after all these years of living in the collective, there were some aspects of its psychology that could never really be grasped if you hadn't been born into it. The hive refused to terminate pregnancies because children were the future of the collective, not because it cared about imperial laws.
9: Carlyle is a hive loyalist through and through. Children are sacred to her. She'll do everything she can to make sure the baby is born healthy and sane. But even if she can't, she won't recommend termination.
0: Danny nodded, satisfied.
9: Good. Would you mind
3: paying Jenny a visit and telling her? I think she'll want to hear it firsthand so she knows you're telling the truth. I'll talk to her.
9: You have any idea who she is?
0: Danny winced.
3: I do. I do but she made me promise not to tell.
0: She shrugged uncomfortably.
3: Trust issues, like I said.
0: She hesitated, then added,
3: If you can pull any of your old psy-op buddies for extra security, it might be a good idea. The guy she's on the run from is a stone-cold killer. I don't think he'd hesitate to break in here and kill her if he found out where she was staying.
0: Her words tugged at a familiar wound in Sasha's heart. The girl sounded all too similar to Abby Preston, the girl Victor had seduced. Sasha was glad Fiona had told her that Abby was safe with Elder Bakhtavar. She didn't approve of using the girl as bait for Victor, but it was probably the surest way to lure him in. She sighed.
9: (sighs) PsyOps might be pushing it, particularly if you want to keep this low profile. I'll see what I can do, though. Thanks, I appreciate it.
0: Danny cocked her head and looked at her curiously.
3: You okay, Sasha? You seem to go somewhere else there
9: for a minute. I'm fine.
0: Sasha rubbed her eyes wearily.
9: I guess I'm just transferring my feelings about the whole situation with Victor, and that girl he took with him when he left. I hope they get that bastard tonight so we can at least put one of these cases behind us.
0: Danny suddenly went very still.
9: Get
3: him? Somebody's trying to get Victor?
0: Sasha nodded. She wasn't allowed to tell anyone they'd recovered Abby Preston, but she could at least tell Danny this much.
9: Elder Miriam Bakhtavar set a trap for him. She brought in Fiona and Brian to help take him down.
0: Sasha felt the change in Danny's aura a moment before she saw the effects. The androgyne's body shifted, as it had when she and Rebecca had rescued her in Overlook Park five months ago. Danny faded into the background, and Daniel surged forward to the front of their shared mind. For modesty's sake, he stayed with a lean androgynous form that would still fit inside Danny's clothes but the hard, hungry look in his eyes was thoroughly masculine. "'Where's this going down?' Sasha hesitated.
9: "'Daniel, you're not field-rated.' "'Fuck
0: that. Victor betrayed us and murdered two of my friends. I've got a score to settle with that son of a bitch.' He put his hands on his hips, an aggressive gesture that looked odd on the slender, feminine body. "'Besides, I'm one of the few students who was ever good enough to beat him in a sparring match.' I couldn't take him on by myself, but as part of a team, hells yes. He leaned in and fixed his eyes on hers. Where, Sasha? She closed her eyes and sighed. Fiona had said that she needed to take part in the trap because she needed closure. Maybe the same was true for Daniel, and she had to admit his combat skills probably would be useful.
9: They're meeting at the subway station at Hutchins Tower. If you're going, you'd better hurry.
0: She checked the clock.
9: They're supposed to meet in about... Fifty minutes.
0: Daniel followed her gaze, then frowned. Can I borrow the skimmer? I need to pick up some gear from home, and I don't think I'll make it if I have to take the bus. Sasha wanted to say no, to keep Daniel out of harm's way for Rebecca's sake. But she knew he would never forgive her for it. Wearily, she pulled out her keys and tossed them to Daniel.
9: For what it's worth, good hunting.
0: Daniel showed her a feral grin as he headed for the door. Take good care of Jenny. Tell her I'll be back as soon as I can.
9: I will. And Eli, go with you, Daniel.
0: She added silently as she watched him go.
9: I only hope you know what you're doing. As
6: he... I can
2: Victor paced back
0: and forth impatiently in the tiny room as the wizard on the floor sat hunched over a copper basin of water. The bedraggled old man wasn't even looking at the thing anymore, just muttering to himself with his eyes rolled back in his head. The room smelled like piss and stale sweat. Discarded syringes from the man's spellfire habit littered the floor. How much longer, Isaac? Victor demanded, his temper wearing thin. The wizard gave a little gasp, blinking hard. With difficulty, he focused on Victor.
6: He's...
7: he's at a hospital.
0: Isaac's voice was low and quavering.
7: In... in secret. She's... she have a friend there who hides her.
0: Victor crossed his arms.
2: Which hospital? There must be dozens in this city.
0: Isaac frowned.
7: Then... Didn't see a name. It did dark gray tiles in a lobby. A f- fountain.
0: He raised a shaking hand and pointed it toward the southeast corner of the
7: room. that away. way
0: Victor growled.
7: Damn it, Isaac, I got you what you wanted. You're going to have to do better than that.
0: Isaac threw up his hands helplessly. The muscle tremors left by years of spellfire abuse exaggerated the gesture making him flop around like a retarded child.
7: It's not, not perfect science, Victor. That way, fountain, great tiles, a pipe, found that way, I think.
0: Victor took a threatening step toward Isaac, and the man fell over on his back, covering his head. Victor checked himself, letting out a disgusted noise as he eyed the addict in front of him.
7: You're pathetic,
0: he muttered, then turned to leave. Isaac did not respond. Outside, Victor took a deep breath of the comparatively clean air, then headed southeast. He would have preferred more specific directions, but Isaac had given him enough to work with. Before the night was out, he'd find Abby and his child. And if he couldn't have them, no one else would either. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after
7: these messages. In the 7th Sun Podcast Novel Trilogy, author J.C. Hutchins sent you underground to a secret human cloning factory. You clawed your way to the surface. You survived. Prepare to head into hell again. Welcome to Brinkville Psychiatric Hospital, the setting for Hutchins' next novel, the supernatural thriller, Personal Effects dark art it's a rotten place with a bloody history nine stories of howling madness built inside an abandoned brownstone quarry locals call it the brink and now jc hutchins and creator jordan weissman are opening the doors of their bloody creation before the book's june bookstore debut but you're not getting a guided tour of the brink. You're being committed. Become a part of publishing history by admitting yourself to the brink and becoming a patient of art therapist Zach Taylor. Inject yourself into the personal effects universe, create a patient profile, receive your admittance papers, contribute artwork, and earn the insanely cool privilege to appear on Brinkville Psychiatrics' official website. Find your first art assignment now at jchutchins.net slash thebrink. Fill out your patient paperwork, submit your art, and come back for more assignments. Get creative. Get crazy. Get committed. Go to jchutchins.net slash thebrink for more information. Or visit jchutchins.net slash personal effects to learn more about the book. Coming this June.
6: Welcome to Lesson 35 of Learn Something New. 365 lessons that teach you something new every day. Today we will learn how to climb the crime syndicate corporate ladder. Step 1. Kill anyone who gets in your way. Why question methods that work? step two kidnap and blackmail government officials seeing as how many government officials probably obtain their jobs this way this will be the easiest step for everyone to follow step three hire large henchmen to help you in your climb these henchmen are essential in dealing with glass ceilings in business as they usually throw your competition through them step four setting aside time to unwind is also essential arrange activities that are far detached from the job such as kinky bathtub sex or step five never forget rule number one. Don't trust anybody. Step six, never forget rule number four. It's just fun to think about. To find out more about crime syndicates of past, present, and distant future, subscribe to Antithesis Book One, Predestination, and Other Games of Chance at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. This concludes Lesson 35, How to Climb the Crime Syndicate Corporate Ladder. See you tomorrow for Lesson 36, Zero Gravity Basket Weaving.
7: Hello, everyone. This is Michael Spence, supporting cast for 118 Migration. Get street smart. You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast.
0: Thanks, Michael. We're back, ladies and gents. And I apologize for the additional delays on this episode. Turns out that on Sunday morning, when I was supposed to get up and work on getting this episode finished... I came down with something along the lines of the Martian death flu. I was flat on my back all day Sunday, and Monday I finally got myself up enough strength to be able to drag myself over to the computer and finish working on this episode. Big thanks to my editor, Paulette Jackson, for getting the edited narration inserted into the file so that I could then get back to work on the mixing. We had a whole bunch of unfortunate schedule conflicts this weekend, which made it difficult for us to do anything, really, until Sunday, and then I got sick. So, you're getting it now. I apologize for the lateness, but at least it's here, finally. Because of the delays on this episode, we're going to be pushing back the next episode to two weeks from this past Saturday. So you will get your next episode of Metamore City on March 28th, if all goes according to plan. After this one, there are only four more episodes left in making the cut. Then we're ending the first season of the Metamore City podcast, going on summer hiatus. And we will be back in September for 090909, the podcaster triple threat with me, J. Daniel Sawyer, and Pip Ballantyne, all debuting our new podcast projects on that date. So mark it on your calendars. That's when Metamore will be back, after the hiatus. Don't forget also that we are doing a Metamore City Summer Interregnum Story Contest for the time between the end of Season 1 and the start of Season 2. If you would like to participate, please write a story somewhere between 1,000 and 6,000 words taking place in the world of Metamore City, and send it to me by the end of May. I strongly encourage you to touch base with me beforehand about the idea that you have in mind for your story, so that I can confirm whether or not it'll be a good fit for the world of Metamore. And if you emailed me before and you haven't heard from me, please email me again. I had a whole bunch of craziness happen over the last couple of months, and chances are that your email got buried in my inbox. I do apologize for that, but just send me a quick message, touch base with me, and make sure that I know that you are doing the story. I look forward to seeing what everybody comes up with. It should be a lot of fun. And the person who puts together the story that I like the best will get a Metamorcity t-shirt from the Zazzle store of their choice. That is, incidentally, at Zazzle.com, Z-A-Z-Z-L-E, slash C-W-Lester. So you can go on over there and check out the many different kinds of Metamorcity merch that are available. We had some special guest voices in this episode that I want to tell you guys about. The first of these was Kim Fortuner, who is playing the role of Morgan Drowling. Kim is going to be our new regular voice for Morgan in Metamore City. She sent me an audition a few months ago, and I was really amazed at how well her voice matched the voice that I had for Morgan in my head. So, hopefully you guys enjoyed this little sneak peek at Kim as Morgan. You'll be hearing a lot more from her in the months to come as we continue on into Metamore City Season 2. This episode also featured Viv, a.k.a. Vivid Muse, from the Into the Blender podcast as Meg, the receptionist, and J. Daniel Sawyer in that wonderfully quirky turn as Isaac, the spellfire addict mage. Thanks again to everybody who's contributing their voices to Metamore City. I would not be able to do this without you. And that'll wrap it up for this week, folks. Again, you can send in your feedback to 206-203-0994, or you can email your comments in text or audio to feedback at com. Remember, we're doing that feedback show this Wednesday, March 18th, so you'll want to hurry up and get in your comments on this episode if you want us to include them on the show. And with that, I'm going to get out of here and get this episode up so that you guys can get your fix that you've been waiting for for so long. And until next time, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.com. Upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.